Stem Cells at Lunch Digested is brought to you by the Centre for Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine at King's College London. Welcome to the Stem Cells at Lunch Digested podcast. I am Ella Hubber, a PhD student in the Department of Diabetes and the Centre for Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine at King's College London. And today we are excited to be joined by Professor Olivier Porquis. Olivier is the Frank Burmalou Professor of Pathology and Professor in the Department of Genetics at Harvard Medical School and Professor of Pathology at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. His work was recognized as one of the milestones in developmental biology of the 20th century by Nature magazine. Thank you for joining us, Olivier. So just to start us off, do you mind giving us a brief run through of your career to this point? So I started as an engineer in France and then I did um, uh, my PhD in Paris with uh, Nicole Ledoirin, who was a famous uh, developmental biologist. And then I moved to start my first lab in Marseille, in the south of France. And, and in 2002, I moved to the U.S., to the Stowers Institute for Medical Research in Kansas City. And there I became a, a Howard Hughes Medical Institute investigator and stayed for seven years. And then moved back to France to take over uh, the Institute of um, uh, Genetics and Molecular and Cellular Biology in Strasbourg in France. And then again, moved back to the US after a few years to uh, Boston to Harvard Medical School. So, and, and I've been working as a developmental biologist studying the development of muscles and the vertebrae for pretty much all these years. Great, thank you. So, a very long career. But earlier this year, your lab published a paper which provided the first evidence of the segmentation clock in human tissue and re- research that began in model organisms decades ago. Could you tell us a, a bit more about what the segmentation clock is and how the research about it has moved from model organisms to human tissue? So, yeah, so so the segmentation clock is uh, is what we call a molecular oscillator which drives the rhythmic expression of genes in the embryo. And uh, the reason why we want to have genes rhythmically expressed is in order to uh, generate a periodicity that is uh, later materialized in the periodic arrangement of structures like vertebrae. So if you look at the spine, you will see that the vertebrae are lined up one after the other. And so the way it forms in the embryo is progressively starting by the more anterior, the vertebrae of the neck, then the thorax and so on. And it's a rhythmic process in the sense that every, um, say for instance, take the chicken embryo, every 90 minutes, there is a pair of precursors that forms and, uh, and, and, and these precursors segregate from the rest and they will form the future vertebra. So, and and so there is a rhythmic component, uh, so a temporal periodicity that's generated by the embryo, and that involves periodic expression of genes. And this periodic expression of genes is controlled by the segmentation clock. And what it does is that it stamps the uh, a new uh, um, set of precursors each time the clock tick. And each time the clock's tick means a new vertebra is going to be specified. I mean, I'm simplifying. It's not exactly that, but that's that's the idea. And if you want to 
to abstract it and, and think about a simple way to visualize such a system, think about an oscillator, something that, that goes in round, that gets displaced in space, that moves. So every time it's going to hit, say, the ground, for instance, it's going to stamp a new vertebra, and then it gets, and so on, so on. In this way, you can transform the oscillation into a periodic series. And that's, that, that's what we think is happening in the embryo for the specification of the vertebrae. Okay, so how does understanding this system translate to human musculoskeletal disorders and clinical application? So it does in, in many ways. I mean, there are many different ways. So one simple one, so if you, so the, the so-called cyclic genes whose periodic expression is driven by the clock, in humans, when they are mutated, unfortunately, this is very rare, that gives rise to congenital scoliosis, which are very severe um, malformation of the spine. So that's one straightforward uh, example. Now there are, we're also learning a lot of things uh, from this system. And for instance, we've been working on the metabolism of these cells. And what we recently showed is that the metabolism of these cells that experience these oscillations is very similar to the metabolism of cancer cells, of tumor cells. And so what uh, we, we hope is to learn more about the metabolism, you know, what controls this, this peculiar metabolism of cancer cells. And, and, and one idea is that cancer cells reenact a developmental program. So understanding this developmental program maybe could help to uh, devise strategies to, uh, to, to, to fight cancer. And now the third important aspect is, is of course, the, um, the, the, the production of cells, of human cells of these different lineages. So one of the things we've done, for instance, is to produce cells of the skeletal muscle lineage. And, and there, there are a number of uh, clinical applications that you can think of. One is to generate uh, in vitro models of disease. And we've done that for Duchenne muscular dystrophy because in this disease, the, the animal models are not very uh, um, similar to the human disease. Then um, you can also think about cell therapy. That is that uh, you, for instance, when satellite, the muscle stem cells degenerate, we think about grafting new ones produced in vitro. And, uh, and you can also think about approaches like screening, high-throughput screening, where you would look for drugs uh, that could cure some aspects of the phenotype of various muscular diseases. Excellent. So, so you mentioned there that you, you're using human uh, systems now. Um, and of course, your lab has done a lot of work in vivo in chicken and mouse embryos. How do these developmental systems and their segmentation clocks differ from one another? And what are the kind of difficulties of moving from one system to another and the benefits that each of them might have? Maybe 10 years ago, we were kind of reaching a bit, you know, the end of the experiments that we could do in vivo using classical genetics in mouse or electroporation in chicken. And so that's why I made this strong push to try to develop these in vitro systems um, which are much more amenable to um, 
sophisticated molecular investigations. And so, but, but I still think it's very important to keep working on the embryo because there are a lot of things we don't understand in the embryo. And so what we do is we try to work on both systems in parallel. And for instance, the metabolism story I was just uh, talking about that, that was recently published, uh, we've done, first we, we identified very striking phenotype in the chicken embryo. And, and so the phenotype is that if you, um, for instance, lower the pH of the culture medium of your embryos, the new mesodermal precursors, instead of forming mesoderm, they will form neural. So they will change fate, in other words. And, and this is just by changing the pH of the medium. And then we were really struck by these observations. So we wanted to see whether this was really true and, and universal. And so then we moved to the human cells in vitro. And we did the same kind of treatments and observed the same effect, the same result. And so now we're very confident that this is a specific effect of the pH. And we've also worked out some aspects of the molecular uh, uh, pathway downstream of this, uh, this effect. Uh, it's amazing to think that such a small thing can make such a huge change. So you've been in the developmental biology field for, for a long time now, so much so that when I did my um, undergraduate degree, the segmentation clock was actually already an ingrained part of our developmental biology curriculum. <laughs> so I'd love to know what you think are the most significant changes in that have been in your field since you started. Yeah, so there, there's been some very significant changes. The, I would say maybe the, the three major ones so the first one is probably the uh, say the arrival of quantitative biology. So when I started, you know, there were no phys or very few physicists in biology, and so you didn't need to quantitate your experiments and, and all that. Now this has completely changed, and and there's been an influx of physicists in biology, and so which uh, which is great actually, and made the the science much more rigorous, but also um, uh, injected a lot of new ideas and, and way to think. And, and I think we're now feeling a lot the influence of these uh, physicists that arrived probably in the wake of the sequencing of the genome, actually. So, so that's, that's one aspect. The other aspect are, the, of course, the, the development of the microscopy. Uh, now there's been some incredible progress and, and you know, techniques like time-lapse imaging, high-resolution, super-resolution, all that, you can really address questions that you couldn't uh, before. And then the third one is, is uh, I think, sing the, the single-cell omics, the fact that you can really dissect the tissue and analyze every cell at the transcriptome level, at the epigenome level, techniques like ATAC-seq, single cell RNA-seq, single nuclei, and uh, sequencing. This is really changing a lot the, the perception uh, of the understanding of the, the tissue we, we had, because um, before all the techniques were dealing with bulk, and so all the, the, the cells were mixed together and analyzed. But now you can really look at the what happens inside the individual cells. I think that's that's a that's a great uh, progress. 
yeah, I think these are changes that all biologists are are seeing right now, um, even in my field in diabetes. So for my final question, I'd like to know if you hadn't gone into musculoskeletal developmental biology research, what area of biology might you have tried instead? What's that thing that always piqued your interest? I, I think pretty much every bit of biology is interesting. I mean, it's more like, a, you know, it's a mindset. I mean, you're, you want to do research. I could have landed in plant research or in microbiology or anything. I think it's, there's no, you know, not one discipline which is more interesting. It's probably also true for physics and I could have landed in physics or, I mean, there's a bit of a personal mindset, but um so no, I, I landed in developmental biology by chance. I started my PhD working on immunology and then drifted in neuroscience and finally ended up in developmental biology. And I never really felt I belonged to one of these fields. It's just, you know, I think the the, the pleasure of searching, investigating. and uh, Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think it's really, really is a mindset. I've often thought that you can make yourself love any area of biology if you have that drive behind you yeah i think that's all we have time for today so i'll just say uh, thank you again olivier thank you please join us again next week for another episode of the stem cells at lunch digestive podcast mm-hmm.